The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Nearly forgotten today outside of Central Africa, the Congo Ocean Railroad was one of the deadliest construction projects in history. Undertaken by French colonisers in the aftermath of the First World War, the railroad was constructed over 13 arduous years, creating a link from the interior to the Atlantic on the continent's west coast. A 2022 book by J.P. Doughton explores the railroad's conception and the events of its construction, examining how such a brutal and deadly project that led to acts of atrocity and countless deaths was spearheaded by a nation whose motto was Liberty, Equality, Fraternity. JP's book has recently been shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize, and we've teamed up with them to bring you conversations with all the nominated authors. Ellen Evans spoke to JP to find out more. And please be aware that this podcast contains graphic and violent descriptions. We're talking today about your book, In the Forest of No Joy, The Congo Ocean Railroad and the Tragedy of French Colonialism. It's very uh, challenging history. And I wondered if we can start by hearing from you, bringing listeners into um, the timescale we're talking about, when the railroad was constructed um, and over how long. Uh, sure. So the the railroad, the Congo Ocean Railroad, was was constructed in uh, French Equatorial Africa, and the actual construction uh, lasted from uh, 1921 to 1934. So it took 13 years, which was uh, remarkably long, considering the fact that the railroad itself uh, is only about 500 kilometers long, about 300 and I think 12 miles long. Um, so uh, it was a very arduous construction project. Uh, uh, over 100,000 men were used to build it. Um, and uh, the reason for this was that it was uh, primarily constructed through an area known as the Mayombe, which uh, is a kind of mountainous area uh, inland from the coast, from the Atlantic coast uh, of Congo, of the French Congo. 
um, uh, that's very mountainous, very, very dense forests, uh, and was extraordinarily difficult because, uh, for, for the engineers, for the construction, uh, because of the geography, uh, because of the soil, it was very sandy, uh, prone to collapses, <clears throat> very uh, rainy. Uh, the weather was bad, um, so it was very difficult uh, from a construction perspective. So it took it took many many years. And we'll get into the impetus for for this railroad and the many factors there uh, in a short while, I'm sure. But um, I guess it's very important to say at this stage as well, this project came with a huge loss of life, didn't it? It did. So um, actually part of the story, I think, really, and part of the violence of the story is that I don't think we'll ever really know how many people died building uh, the Congo-Océan Railroad. Um, That said, there have been estimates by uh, scholars, uh, there have been estimates by uh, administrators and journalists at the time uh, that certainly put the number between about fifteen and 25,000 deaths. Um, so it actually makes it probably the, the second most deadly or the second deadliest, uh, construction project, uh, in modern history after the, the French phase of the Panama Canal, which because of disease took many, many lives. Um, but it, it, it's an extraordinary, uh, loss of, of life when you look at other construction projects, uh, around the world, um, particularly ones that were not, uh, built by, say, uh, you know, authoritarian regimes or built during wartime with prison labor. I mean, this was, we need to remember from the outset, uh, a construction project that was sponsored by a country that had, you know, liberty, equality, and fraternity as its, as its motto, uh, an ostensibly liberal regime, um, and uh, was allegedly, in the, in the words of the colonial regime, using free labor. Um, so to lose, say, 20,000 uh, lives is, is really uh, unheard of. And can we touch then on some of the factors that have led to this, this project and this, this um, hugely significant um, loss of life? What are the factors that have led to this history being um, forgotten or perhaps less valued compared to other big railroad projects? Well, I think, you know, uh, colonial violence and, and the sort of atrocities and, and death caused by empire generally, um, I think is, is much discussed now, uh, increasingly discussed, which I think is a good thing. And I think oftentimes historians and, and lay people alike will talk about how uh, colonial violence has been forgotten. Um, and I think what I found in this that was most striking is that um, – we shouldn't really think of the Congo as being forgotten and the violence of it and the, the the toll that it took being forgotten because it really was denied this violence, this horror, uh, the suffering, the misery. It was denied from the moment that it happened. Um, there was an entire kind of colonial apparatus uh, that relied heavily on bureaucratic reports uh, on you know what we would call now spin um, letters to uh, newspapers, uh, letters to politicians, uh, to try to get them to tell a story that said that the loss of life was unfortunate, uh, but was always exaggerated. Uh, the loss of life was uh, something that uh, was necessary in order to help the future of the continent, certainly the future of the very Africans who are building it. So there were multiple ways in which uh, colonial officials, politicians defended the project. Um, and because of that, uh, really from the moment that it was completed in 1934, 
Uh, the story of the Congo Océan became one of a great engineering triumph uh, for the French government, not one of extraordinary trauma for the African men and women who actually built it. It's it's staggering for sure. And I know we're going to talk in a lot more detail about um, many of those factors. But for now, I wonder if we can take a little step back and um, wonder if you can give our listeners a little extra context on a sense of when French imperialism in equatorial Africa began. Sure. So uh, French imperialism in equatorial Africa really began uh, in earnest in the 1880s. Um, the, the key figure was Pierre Savignon de Braza, who was actually an Italian-born but naturalized uh, French citizen, um, who uh, was a, a kind of great, you know, in the, in the, the sort of, uh, you know, great explorer of the imperial age uh, model. Uh, he was uh, a man who decided to set out and, and explore uh, first, what is now Gabon, and then uh, the area that became the French Congo, or the Moyen Congo, or the Middle Congo, uh, which is the area north of the Congo River, the Belgian Congo, Leopold's Congo being to the to the south. Um, and he explored, he made uh, agreements uh, with uh, local chiefs. The extent to which they understood the agreements that were being made is, is I think, uh, much debatable. Um, but slowly but surely, territory was claimed in the name of France um, until uh, the early 1900s when uh, large portions of what are now the countries of uh, the Republic of Congo, Gabon, uh, Central African Republic and Chad were unified uh, into what was called French Equatorial Africa. Um, and this was a, a process that uh, included certainly violence. It included uh, warfare with uh, French soldiers. It included agreements with uh, local uh, leaders. Uh, and slowly but surely, the French tried to stake a claim to to the region. Um, it it changed uh, by the 1890s, largely because the French realized that it was extraordinarily difficult uh, and extraordinarily expensive to actually set up an administration uh, in the region. Um, there was a kind of lack of money, a lack of will in Paris. Uh, there were uh, colonial ventures going on in places like Indochina that people thought were uh, more valuable uh, to to the nation, um, and as a result, there was a shift uh, in the uh, around the turn of the century uh, to a concessionary system. And this concessionary system, which was a system that was used in other empires, uh, other European empires at the time, essentially turned over the work of colonizing, of developing, say, the infrastructure in theory of educating, of, of providing medical assistance uh, to African populations. These were turned over to concessionary companies. And these concessionary companies, uh, some of them were very fly-by-night kind of organizations. They had very few people actually on the ground. Uh, some were a little bit more uh, developed, but they too had uh, extraordinary challenges in trying to set up uh, their companies to try to uh, get uh, products, to get resources out of the region. Um, the concessionary companies were, were largely interested in rubber at the time. Um, ivory was another uh, another uh, resource that they they sought. Um, lesser source resources were things like uh, lumber, 
uh, and other agricultural sources. Um, they tried to make money, as was uh, happening in the Belgian Congo at the time, um, but many of them, in fact, failed. Um, and the extraordinary thing, I think, to me, the most interesting thing about these concessionary companies is that the French government essentially turned over power to these companies, many of you know, whom, many of which were were fairly unknown to the public, unknown even to uh, the government. Um, huge tracts of land, tracts of land that sometimes I think the largest uh, concessions were, in fact, the size of uh, modern day Iceland, modern day Greece. Um, others were the size of American states like New Jersey, Connecticut. Um, so huge tracts of land. Um, and they were basically given free reign over the areas. They could treat the local population as they wanted. There were certainly expectations that they would treat them well, but there was absolutely no way in which, uh, in which the, the kind of treatment of the local population was monitored or policed by the government. Um, so really until the first world war, there was a kind of, um, uh, kind of haphazard effort really on the part of the French government to, to colonize, to actually be present in, uh, equatorial Africa. And that started to change, or at least the effort or the, uh, the rhetoric of an effort started to change after the first world war, which is when, uh, the, the, uh, Congo Océan was, was started. And can we touch maybe on those those pervasive social attitudes and how they changed after the First World War? Um, I, I wanted to maybe explore the, quote, um, civilizing mission and how that affected, um, you know, French people, French colonizers and how they were treating the, the people that they were coming across in Congo. Sure. So the, the French had a kind of long tradition in colonial terms, I mean, stretching back certainly to the, the mid-19th century at at, at the latest, perhaps even earlier, of uh, what they called the the mission civilisatrice, the civilizing mission, which was really the kind of ideological cornerstone of French colonialism. It was this idea that, um, in, in the words of Jules Ferry, who was a famous uh, French Republican, um, that the French had a right to colonize peoples because they had a duty to civilize them. It was this kind of bound up idea that the French could go and start colonies and, and, you know, really dominate uh, local areas that they otherwise had no real claim to because they were bringing their, uh, the, the great bounty of French civilization with them. The idea was that they were going to develop these places economically. They were going to teach people French. They were going to teach people French, uh, French ideas, French philosophy. Um, I mean, it was a very abstract uh, and, and kind of idealistic uh, notion, the, the civilizing mission. Um, in practice, in places like equatorial Africa, you know, there were very, very few teachers throughout the 19th and early 20th century. There were very, very few hospitals or doctors. I mean, we're talking like uh, fewer than 10 doctors in a, in a region that's five times the size of France. So they're not putting the money into the civilizing mission that, uh, that they claim to be. I mean, they're not, they're not really putting their money where their rhetoric was. Um, by the First World War, there starts to be a concern in France that colonialism is not paying for itself, that it's actually a great drain financially on the nation. Um, and after the, second, after the First World War, there's a kind of retooling of the civilizing mission to a certain extent um, to, uh, to a policy of mise en valeur, which 
roughly, I mean, it's a kind of imperfect translation, but I think it's most usually translated in English as development, the idea of a sort of economic development. And the idea there was that there would be a shift from, you know, French largesse of the civilizing mission, you know, allegedly giving the people of the world the the benefits of French civilization, um, to a more kind of give and take relationship with local populations, where the French would work with local populations to develop uh, to 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 make valuable the the uh, the economy to develop the uh, the political situation to to teach people politics to teach people the the benefits of republicanism for example um, to educate to bring medicine these sorts of things um, so the the Congo Océan was very much built at this moment uh, and with this kind of rhetoric that the nation the French nation was going to you know bring all of the uh, the sort of technical know-how and the expertise and the financing of the railroad with the expectation that Africans would join in the project and work to build the railroad. It was going to be a sort of joint effort that was going to enrich and better the lives of everyone, both white colonial uh, uh, merchants and, and traders and others who lived in, in the colony uh, and the Af- local African populations. So when it's first conceived then, how how feasible is this railroad? You mentioned huge challenges regarding landscape terrain. And I think what came across to me in your book is that um, early attempts to sort of um, scope out the project seem so haphazard and and quite ill-informed, really. How how feasible is this project early on? Um, well, it's funny because it, it, you're absolutely right. The, uh, the early attempts to try to map a kind of route uh, are really the products of imperialism at this time. I mean, I, th- I think we, you know, again, we, we tend to have the idea, many people, I mean, perhaps more in the United States than in, than in Britain, where there's a greater sense of what empire was all about in the, in the 19th century and early 20th century. There tends to be this notion that, you know, imperialists knew what they were doing. Um, and there are actually a lot of instances in the early stages, actually all the way through the story, but certainly in the early stages, of uh, men who really had minimal training, um, who just sort of ventured out with a bunch of porters and some support to try to come up with a good route to make it from Brazzaville, which is where the 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 train started to the Atlantic coast. Um, many of them died along the way. They drowned in rivers. Many of the ideas that they came up with seemed to, to me, um, and I think probably to most uh, people who are who are familiar with kind of engineering possibilities of the late 19th and early 20th century, kind of outlandish, um, you know, efforts to sort of have a train that goes partly to a river that was going to be dredged and made with locks so that boats could go down the river and, you know, and then meeting up with another train. I mean, these, these kind of, you know, seemingly complicated uh, and, and impossible sorts of routes from Brazzaville to the coast. Um, and in fact, there was so much debate <clears throat> for really for about 20 years up until the First World War about where to go with the railroad, what route it would take, um, that in the wake of the First World War, when money was finally available, when the French actually set out to start building the railroad, they did not have a definitive map of what the route was going to be. Um, the governor general at the time in 1921 had decided that there had been enough discussion about where the route might be um, and that they'll figure it out 
they'll wing it basically as they go along. Um, and he started building the railroad out of Braza, uh, out of Brazzaville. And that was easy to do fairly easy because the, the terrain right outside of Brazzaville is, is relatively kind of rolling hills. Um, and he knew that no matter where it ended up going, when it got to the Mayom, but to the difficult part, um, he could at least start uh, building uh, on the way out of town. Um, so that's where it started. And it really, uh, the, the final route of the railroad was not in fact determined until the very, very last years of its construction. Um, so there was this constant kind of improvisation that was going on, which I think gives a sense of both how ill-prepared in some ways the French were to building it. Um, and also it gives a sense of, of how difficult the terrain was to, to get through. And um, was that? Were there any examples or any that you came across of any sense of consultation with um, local people? Or uh, I mean, obviously, we'll get into how French colonizers regarded local people as a potential workforce. But was there any attempt at collaboration or sense of that at all? Not really. And and in fact, there's some um, some accounts by some of these early sort of explorers slash uh, surveyors who tried to come up with uh, their own routes. Um, there is in in some of those documents really a sense of kind of disdain of the locals, that the locals were maybe not cooperating, the locals were not uh, giving any sort of advice, and the locals were ignorant of the project at hand. So there was there was almost a kind of um, you know dismissal of the very possibility of local knowledge that could help with this kind of technological expertise that the French had. Okay, so the project uh, goes into motion. Then um, you mentioned this um, concession, this legacy of concessions, which obviously have a very, very brutal side to them as well. Um, perhaps we can talk about that and how this played into um, the recruitment for for this railroad project. Right. So, I mean, there there is, I think, a sort of irony in the concessionary system as a kind of prelude to the building of the, the railroad, it's probably worth backing up a little bit to say that Braza became, after sort of discovering and making these connections with local groups and claiming territory and so forth, uh, he became the, the kind of head administrator uh, in the French Congo uh, in the 1890s. Um, but he ran into many problems, budgetary limitations. He was constantly frustrated. His own vision of what he wanted the colony to be was, was quite muddled. Um, and he was ultimately removed, uh, in not quite disgrace because he had been this great hero in the, in the 1880s. Um, but sort of quietly swept aside, but then in the early 1900s, news started to come out about the brutality of some of these concessionary uh, of the concessionary system, some of these concessions, um, the ways in which they were uh, kidnapping, um, uh, raping in some cases, murdering in some cases, local people in order to uh, coerce them into working, usually into collecting rubber. Um, there were uh, cases not only of uh, of of representatives of the concessions, but also administrators who are doing the same. And perhaps the most horrific uh, case uh, that came to light that became a sort of uh, scandal in France uh, was an instance in which two administrators, two relatively low-level administrators, 
um, decided that it would be entertaining to blow up an African with uh, a stick of dynamite. Um, there were these stories of atrocities that came out that embarrassed the government, and they decided that they needed to uh, move forward with a kind of uh, examination uh, uh, of what was going on in the colony and exposition of of the atrocities and to to set things right. So they actually called Braza out of retirement to go and uh, investigate, which he did. He took a team of people. He went. He found not only the the atrocities that had been reported in the newspaper that had sort of made their way back to France, but a number of other atrocities as well. Um, and his uh, his report was so damning that the French government, in fact, uh, buried it. In the wake of Braza's uh, revelations, the French government uh, announced that it was going to make great changes, that it was going to bring great reforms to uh, the region. This didn't really happen in the last years leading up to the First World War. Then the war happened. But then with the, with the end of the war, there was, uh, as I mentioned, this kind of new policy of mise en valeur, of development, that was really going to take the colony away from this concessionary past. It was going to move it toward a more rational, uh, a more um, uh, well-administered, well-governed kind of system uh, of colonialism. And that's where the, the uh, Congo Océan uh, comes out. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Uh, but these were photos that were so matter-of-factly put in this book that it really suggested to me that the Batignol, the, the engineers, didn't really have pity for their workers, but rather saw them as uh, yet another obstacle to overcome, yet another challenge. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. To building. So obviously some horrific testimony there from the concessionary system. Despite this sort of repositioning of, of this mission in, in the Congo, um, very unfortunately, this, this railroad project leads to very similar tactics, doesn't it? It really does. Uh, absolutely. I think that um, despite the kind of rhetorical change, that there's a new relationship with African populations, with uh, you know a, a new balance to colonialism, if you will, um, despite that, in practice, administrators uh, still had to rely on kind of tried and true, or they believed they still had to rely on tried and true methods of recruiting uh, 
people to work on the railroad. Um, so in fact, many of the brutal practices that were used by concessionary companies like you know, rounding up people and threatening to kill them, threatening to rape them in order to coerce villages to give up workers. These these became the kind of uh, uh, part and parcel of what uh, the colony relied on to get uh, laborers. Now, the colony denied it. The colonial regime denied it uh, when there were suggestions, say, in the press in France or uh, if travelers came across it and wrote about it in in books, um, but in fact, those very practices that had defined the concessionary system and the brutality of it became the kind of the cornerstone of labor recruitment in many parts of uh, of the colony. So you talked a little about how much these stories were able to make their way back to France, how they were suppressed. How much were you able to surface testimony or experiences of those the, the workers themselves, people who were coerced into this work? Well, it's interesting. And the the archive, I think, is it seems thin in some ways in terms of uh, documentation that can show us the sort of experience of, say, recruitment, the experience of work on the on the railroad. Um, but in fact, there are many, many fragments of information that can be used to uh, see what is really going on. Um, many of the newspaper reports, travelers' accounts uh, that were published in France were dismissed as, you know, false, as being politically motivated, as being uh, unpatriotic uh, attempts to sort of undermine the colonial mission, whatever it might be. Um, But what I found is that once I looked at some of these more well-known published sources from the time, um, I could go into the archive and in fact find evidence from bureaucratic reports themselves that suggested that they were in fact accurate. Um, and there are enough stories, I think, in the archives uh, produced by administrators themselves about what they did to recruit uh, to cre- recruit uh, workers, uh, or how how local people uh, who were uh, recruited ended up living the sort of living conditions on the railroad itself. Um, you could look at, for example. Um, how much food was being distributed uh, and sort of do the math based on how many workers there were to get a sense of the kind of caloric intake that workers uh, must have had. Um, So there are enough reports that really allowed me to stitch together a recreation, not of, certainly not of what the African workers themselves felt or thought, because those are really difficult issues to get at. Um, but but definitely what the sort of physical experience of working on the railroad was, what it was like to be rounded up, what it was like to be marched, say, you know, a thousand kilometers, what it was like to be on a boat that um, these barges that would go down rivers carrying hundreds of workers sometimes um, crammed together, um, what it was like to live in a hut, what the huts looked like. I mean, all these sorts of things were, in fact, very much documented by uh, by administrators themselves. Now, the, do- the documentation that these lower-level administrators uh, produced were oftentimes uh, kind of uh, hidden, buried by the governor general's office before it sent reports to 
France. So what's getting back to France, certainly to the French government, to French politicians, was a very different story uh, from what many of the actual administrative reports from the Congo itself uh, looked like. And there is, there's a photo book, isn't there, which does show and survive um, as evidence of what these conditions did to people's bodies to uh, to the African workers who were working on this railroad. Yes, uh, I actually relied fairly heavily on photographs as much as I could. There are not a lot of photographs, but I think that the photographs that have survived are really remarkable. Um, and in many ways, the reason why I decided to write the book uh, was because of coming across some of these photographs in the first place. There, there was a book that I came across in an archive in the north of France that was a, it's a, it's the archive of the the Batignol Company, which was the main construction company that built part of the railroad. A kind of internet. It was a, it was a sort of French uh, French engineering company that built bridges, built canals internationally. It was very well known at the time, and they kept a essentially kind of like a family album uh, is, I guess, how I would explain it, just because it's a big book in which pictures are kind of pasted in inside it um, of what uh, the conditions were like uh, across the railroad. So in the book is uh, pictures, are pictures that you would expect to see, things like, you know, white French engineers in their white linen suits and their, you know, pith helmets and, uh, you know, going to uh, concerts or uh, hunting. Um, but also uh, there are these photos of workers, I mean, many of whom look truly broken and emaciated and um, scared, uh, frustrated, disdainful, contemptuous. I mean, the, the, the expressions on the face of, uh, of many of the workers who were photographed um, really kind of captured my attention on a on a purely human level and and made me start to wonder you know how is it possible that that this world existed right a, a world of such extremes um, so these photos I think are useful for again looking at the actual body bodily condition of the workers many of them are emaciated ribs exposed sort of skin and bones pictures and what was really most striking to me is that these are the sorts of images I think we've come to get used, you know, be used to seeing um, with famines or other kind of, uh, you know, humanitarian crises. Uh, but these were photos that were so matter-of-factly put in this book um, that it really suggested to me that uh, the the Batignol, the the engineers, um, didn't really have pity for their workers, but rather saw them as uh, yet another obstacle to overcome, yet another challenge to building. You'll see pictures of these emaciated workers right next to pictures of extraordinarily dense forests or photos of, of deep ravines that had to be crossed with bridges. So this connection between um, the, the physical landscape and the challenges of building um, with, in, in such a dangerous and difficult place combined with the challenges of such a workforce, uh, I think really captures the way the kind of contempt and the sort of attitude that many French administrators and, and uh, engineers had uh, for the local population, the attitudes of, uh, you know, that they were, that they were in some ways um, hindering the project as opposed to being the ones who actually were building the railroad. 
and how much does this contempt then this this disdain for um clearly a workforce that's suffering terribly the, the, how much does this play into the fact that this project endures it, it keeps going um can you give us a sense of of the project and how it sort of how it was shaped by that that factor i think that while many while many africans died due to physical mistreatment i mean there were many cases of Africans being beaten to death, being essentially murdered by their overseers. The vast majority of uh, the workers died, you know, from neglect, essentially, from starvation uh, or severe malnutrition, from disease. Um, And what is really striking is the extent to which that translated into a kind of... um, attitude that the French uh, administration and the Batignol had that that these people were racially inferior that they were uh, that they were simply weak that they were uh, incapable of doing the hard work that Europeans were able to do um, so the kind of contempt I think that uh, that the European uh, population had for these workers translated it into a kind of callousness about the death of the workers. Um, and I think that that played an important role in um, certainly people on the ground, Europeans on the ground, justifying to themselves um, how it was possible that so many people would be dying in the production of or, or the building of a railroad. So, the railroad is completed uh, after a huge amount of time, but a, a hugely significant cost to life. And yet it's it's celebrated. Well, what can you say about the ceremony in the moment when it is completed? Yeah. in So in 1934, uh, when the railroad is completed, the French put on a great party. They invited dignitaries from other colonies around, from the Belgian Congo, from Angola, um, from Europe, European dignitaries. They obviously invited all of the sort of white community of, of uh, equatorial Africa um, to celebrate their great achievement. I mean, in the end, they saw it as having triumphed over nature, um, having finally brought light to the darkness. This is the sort of imagery that was used. Um, it was a first step in uh, the words of the Governor General uh, uh, Raphael Antonetti. It was a first step in in penetrating the, the the continent and making a railroad that would lead from Brazzaville to Johannesburg, from Johannesburg all the way to Cairo. This kind of conquering uh, imagery was was very common. Um, Toward the end of the construction, the uh, kind of trope of war became very central to the rhetoric uh, of those who supported the building of the railroad. And this was a moment of victory. Um, And what's really, for me, um, extraordinarily tragic is that the men and women, the the over 100,000 men and women uh, from Africa who, in fact, built the railroad, who, who suffered through... Uh, building a railroad with with minimal equipment, with 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 really uh, oftentimes just their hands, their backs, um, were completely uh, ignored by the the celebration. Um, and there was a commemorative uh, photograph album again that that was published uh, as part of the ceremony. Um, that showed the kind of progress that the railroad had made over the the 13 years that it was being built. Um, 
where early photos show the sort of dense forests and countryside. And the later photos show, you know, this finished railroad with little railroad stations along the way, train stations uh, and, and so forth. Um, and in it are, in fact, very, very few photos of Africans themselves. And again, um, it, it needs to be seen, I think, this this book um, as the sort of story. And this goes, I think, to the forgetting, the denial, right? It has to be seen as, as part of this project of really marginalizing the Africans who actually did the construction from the entire story. Um, so it was a moment of French triumph. It was a moment of French celebration. Um, and it was sadly a moment where the Africans who in many number died uh, or suffered building it were essentially uh, excluded from history. And you've mentioned the intent, whether genuine or not, of, of the colonizers to bring some element of prosperity with this 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 railroad construction to the region. And what effect did the railroad have on the economy in equatorial Africa in, in reality? The defenders of the railroad, the, the kind of supporters of the railroad, had always claimed that it was going to radically transform equatorial Africa. It was going to allow the resources of the interior of Central Africa, things like rubber, ivory, lumber, uh, minerals, to be uh, efficiently shipped to the coast, to a port. Pointe-Noire was the was the, uh, the the port that was built ultimately on the coast. And then from there to the world, it was going to connect Central Africa essentially to global markets. Um, the promises that were made were uh, outlandish, however, though, because they were based on uh, a level of productivity that the colony never had. So the promises of you know millions of tons of goods being shipped was fine to suggest. And in fact, the railroad could have handled part of it, uh, certainly, um, but the, the colony itself was not producing that amount of goods. Um, so the impact that it had was really relatively minimal um, from uh, the get-go. Uh, it was not until after decolonization, until the 1960s, uh, that the Republic of Congo uh, itself started to develop its economy and then use the railroad in ways that uh, were uh, profitable, that were certainly uh, helpful to the economy. And it wasn't until the 1960s um, that the levels of goods being moved from the coast to the interior and from the interior to the coast reached the levels that that the French had promised in the 1930s. So it was not it was not only about the success of the railroad working. It really was much more about a kind of delusion um, that many defenders of the railroad had about the profitability and the productivity of the colony itself. Um, that said, um, while the railroad did end up being um, effective, efficient, uh, in, or useful, I should say, in, in moving goods. Um, there were many problems built into the railroad from the get-go. Um, it was a relatively narrow-gauged railroad, which meant that uh, it moves very, very slowly. I went to the Congo, to the Republic of Congo, uh, in 2015 and rode the the railroad. And even to this day, it moves very, very slowly across the, the landscape in order to make the many turns and the the grade uh, that the that the rails are at to get through the mountains. Um, 
that the sort of tortuousness of the railroad also leads to a lot of um, accidents. It leads to the wearing out of rails, uh, rails themselves. Um, so the railroad itself has has never really been a, a hugely uh, efficient or effective railroad. Um, and uh, because of that is oftentimes closed down. Just recently, there have been landslides that have destroyed part of the railroad that is, have made it impassable. So it continues to have a lot of problems as well. And the history of the construction itself, how is that regarded in the in the Republic of Congo today? You know, that's that's a little bit trickier. I think in the Republic of Congo today, um, there's a kind of mixture of a knowledge of the difficulties of building it, but also a certain pride in the fact that it was constructed. Um, I think once it was completed, um, it is, uh, I mean, this is the, the sort of tricky part of trying to understand the, the Congo Océan. It is kind of a technical wonder. I mean, the fact that they were able to build um, with really very, very few uh, mechanical tools uh, a railroad that stretched through this very difficult bit of land uh, is quite a, an accomplishment. It, it is a kind of engineering marvel, um, though obviously one that was extraordinarily deadly. So there, there is a certain, I think, amount of pride that goes into uh, the, the railroad. Um, I think it is different in areas further to the north. I mean, my sense is that the memory of the Congo Océan in places like Chad, where a lot of uh, workers were recruited um, and taken and where many, you know, many of the recruits died, um, I think there it's, it's seen as a much more tragic kind of chapter in the lives of these, uh, the people obviously who lived through it, but also the kind of legacy of it is much more tragic than it is in the Republic of Congo itself. Uh, and as you've alluded to, a, a lot of Euro- European countries at the moment are grappling with sense of imperial past. Uh, what What's this history regarded like in France? Um, I, you know, I think the Congo Océan for the general public is, is largely unknown in France. Um, I think uh, my own uh, my own sense is is that the French have done a lot of grappling with their own history in Algeria because obviously Algeria was a place much closer to home. Uh, it was a place where hundreds of thousands of of Frenchmen lived. Uh, it was uh, a, a sort of overseas possession, although it became part of France. Uh, that. Uh, is much more fraught today in terms of the politics of Islam, the politics of uh, the right wing. I mean, there are lots of ways in which memory is is tied up with Algeria uh, in France. But I do think that French engagement with other parts of the world, uh, notably equatorial Africa, but I think you could definitely point to other cases of atrocity, of grave mistreatment, of depopulation and uh, Indochina and the Pacific Ocean and West Africa. I think these are are largely neglected, largely unknown in France. Um, so it it remains a kind of uh, uh, you know undiscussed history. People people sometimes will throw out numbers about oh many thousands died in the Congo Océan. It's like it's a kind of it's almost like a sound bite. But I really think that the the story and this is was the motivation for the book. The story for how and why uh, an ostensibly liberal 
uh, empire could uh, create the conditions that were so deadly and so brutal and so inhumane. Um, I think though that story is really unknown. And if I can um, end on on that, then what brought you to this story? You know, I I guess I've been well. I, I talked a little bit about the photographs. The photographs definitely you know, we're a kind of human connection. I think historians, you know, when you go to the archives, oftentimes you're just looking at sort of old dusty documents. Um, there's something about photographs where you actually see the people who are involved and they're, they're staring back at you that I get, that gives you a kind of immediate visceral feeling of connection. Um, and, uh, you know, immediately there was, as I said, this kind of desire to, to understand, but I think more broadly, in terms of my career as a historian, you know, modern European historians, which is what I I, I am, you know, we're we're so used to trying to understand the violence of European history, the violence of totalitarianism, the violence of the Holocaust, uh, of uh, the Soviet period. Um, you know, we're, we're fascinated with neighbors killing neighbors, uh, you know, genocide, all the sorts of dark, horrible things that have happened to, to Europe. And it really is, has long struck me as a historian that we don't give the same level of attention to the experiences and the lives of people who lived under colonial domination. And, there are extraordinary stories out there of, of suffering, um, certainly, and of misery on the part of colonial uh, subjects. Um, but there's also, I think, something to be learned uh, from how, again, liberal, ostensibly Republican or Democratic governments can create situations where atrocities can happen, where violence can can be pervasive, where uh, misery can be sort of uh, explained away. Um, institutions, I think, and I think this comes out in the story of the Congo Océan, institutions are remarkably efficient and effective uh, at telling their own stories, at shaping their own narratives. And this is a lesson, I think, that we have uh, to learn today, both in dealing with our own governments but, you know, I've, I've talked to friends who've said that their companies, their universities, their own institutions, certainly not on the level of the Congo Océan, not on the level of the sort of misery that, they, that the French uh, uh, created in building this railroad, but, but that level of institutional corruption um, is something that really speaks to people still today. And I think it's a question that we need to uh, kind of grapple with, like, how do we find the truth? Uh, in this era where there are so many different competing perspectives. That was J.P. Doughton. His book, In the Forest of No Joy, The Congo Ocean Railroad and the Tragedy of French Colonialism, is out now, published by W.W. W. Norton & Company. We're speaking to all of the Kundal's shortlisted authors on the podcast over the coming weeks, so make sure that you keep an eye out for those. And if you'd like to find out more about the Kundal History Prize, you can do that at kundalprize.com. That's C-U-N-D-I-L-L. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 